Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Oscar-nominated director Elaine McMillian Sheldon. Elaine joins me to discuss her very personal documentary, King Cole. A lyrical tapestry of people and place, King Cole meditates on the complex history and future of the coal industry, the communities it has shaped, and the myths it has created. In King Cole, Elaine McMillian Sheldon reshapes the boundaries of documentary filmmaking in a spectacularly beautiful and deeply moving immersion into central Appalachia, where coal is not just a resource, but a way of life. Here's the film's trailer. I was born one morning when it was drizzling rain. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mines. I loaded 16 ton of number nine coal. For those of us who grew up with it, coal is intrinsic. Is coal important to your family? I don't know. Is it to your family? Yes. That creates the kind of bond that you don't just make with any co-worker. No. But coal mining, you go underground, sacrifice your life, you right. sweat and bleed and work. I've seen a time of brotherhood. For nearly a century, we've been told this place is nothing without a king. All of this used to be trees and green leaves and ferns. Its spirit fades away. They say my father's father. In the beginning, this place was wild. Sometimes I wonder if our king's ghost is trapped here. I guess you can't take my memories from me. It is not dirty or clean. It is elemental. I learned that you can be proud of your life and want better for them that come after you. There have always been those of us looking for stories that keep us alive. Elaine McMillian Sheldon is an Academy Award-nominated and Emmy and Peabody Award-winning filmmaker. She's the director of two Netflix original documentaries, Heroin and Recovery Boys, each of which explores America's opioid crisis. She's been named a Creative Capital Awardee, a Guggenheim Fellow, a USA Fellow by United States Artists, and one of the 25 new faces of independent film, by Filmmaker Magazine. King Cole premiered at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival and is currently enjoying a successful theatrical run. The film will be available for video on demand and streaming in early 2024. Elaine McMillian Sheldon was raised in West Virginia and lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is where she spoke to me from. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. 
from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. Now on to my conversation with Elaine McMillian Sheldon. Hello, Elaine McMillian Sheldon. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you have directed this absolutely uh, beautiful, sort of ephemeral, lyrical, dreamlike film called King Cole. And I want to talk a lot about that film. But before we get into talking about King Cole and all of its uh, components, I want to share with our listeners a bit of your story. In introducing yourself, tell us a bit about where you're from and how you came to come upon the path that you've traveled. Well, I currently live in Knoxville, Tennessee, so one of the more growing cities in Appalachia, but I have um, grew up here in Appalachia in the coal fields of West Virginia. So um, coming up, I, you know, my heroes were the ones on TV that were in New York and Chicago, I wanted to be Oprah or Katie Kirk, um, was sitting in Logan, West Virginia. That was sort of like my way of seeing how I could get out of my small town and be in the world. And um, I wanted to be a storyteller. I didn't know, have a clue what any of that meant. You know, everyone in my family, I don't really have any artists in my family besides a great uncle who's a self-taught painter and photographer, which has definitely influenced my life. Um, So I went and studied journalism at West Virginia University and then made my first film, worked at newspapers, um, decided to get my MFA at Emerson and have been working independently as a filmmaker since 2013. And I think it was that time in Boston when I really started asking, you know, I'm surrounded by other people from all over the country telling different stories. And you start asking, what stories do you know that they don't know and they don't have access to and they're not thinking about? And Appalachia just kept coming up as a sort of wellspring for me of a place where I could find creativity. So in and out of the region for the past 10 years, but have been consistently making work here um, Mm -hmm. during that time. Mm -hmm. And and you're the daughter and the granddaughter uh, of coal miners, correct? Yeah, and great-granddaughter, yeah. So there's four generations with my brother. He still works in the industry. In what capacity uh, did your great-grandfather grandfather and dad work were they were they actually down in the mines oh yeah yeah um my great grandpa was i think mostly just you know a farmer like i the stories that i hear from him is that the coal mines came in and he was living you know the family was sort of like um surviving by living off the land and selling what they had and trading and bartering. And then this big industry came in and he started mining coal. And then my grandpa, who's in the film, um, and this is, I'm speaking just of my mom's side. So both sides of my family worked in coal. It's not an unusual thing where I grew up. It's just what you do for work. Um, And then my grandpa, who's in the film, you know, worked in 24 inch coal seams which means he literally dug coal on his belly um with a pickaxe so these are like the early days and then my dad well my dad's dad was a preacher and a coal miner and um my dad was the first in our family to go to college and that was a big turning point for everyone including sort of breaking this tradition of a miner um and so my dad became an engineer And he was working alongside his own dad in the mines 
doing like surveying and different things. But my dad came up in a time of mining when things became less local. So mm-hmm. all the mines that my, my great grandpa and my grandpa worked in, they were all small mines owned by local companies and um, types of things. But once my dad came up, it was big corporations. And so he was working on bigger strip mines, which is the mountaintop removal sites and these other things, but still mining coal. And then my brother, um, my dad did not want him to follow into the footsteps, but he he chose to because he's a he's also an electrician and an um, electronics engineer. And so my brother works a lot in safety. Um, mm-hmm. And so my dad and my brother, towards the later, latter part of my dad's years, he he did a lot of um, what they call mine rescue, where they retrieve men who've been trapped in mines. And so my family's worked at all levels of the of the industry and you know my cousins still are roof boulders today they drive the buggy that goes in and out they do all the hard work so you mentioned a brother is that your only sibling yes how was the role of coal the singular singular importance of coal for your family how did that perception evolve from generation to generation to generation from going from well this is an opportunity for employment to this is something different once sort of the 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 cost and the benefit of of being involved in that industry uh became more visceral my dad talks about this quite a bit because he remembers you know when he first started um being at his grandpa's house and his dad there and he was there and everybody there worked at the mines and it was really not you just shared stories or you knew the stories and there was nothing very um, controversial, political, uh, uh, anything about it. And now it's turned into a thing where, you know, most of the family gatherings, people are talking more about being unemployed <laughs> than they are about their stories in the mines. And so, you know, most of the time when I get together with my cousins, it's a matter of talking about how long they've been laid off this time or, you know, if they're looking for retraining and all the different things they sort of want from their lives. So it's it's more focused a, away from this sort of glory and pride and uh, work that was sustaining in some ways. And now it's this like sort of dead thing we carry around that's not able to sustain us. Um, and so I think there's that reality check where there's still plenty of people working not not as many as you would think the less than 10,000 miners in West Virginia which we've got more people in the hospitality and mm-hmm. tourism and forestry and um but they're still mining a lot of coal and so i think that's sort of the disconnect is that um a lot of the coal that's mined where i'm from is called metallurgical coal and it's used to make steel and so it's not actually used for power generation which is part of our more um mainstream discourse around electricity so this coal is 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 used specifically to make rebar and bridges and cruise ships and and so the men that still mine the coal in my family i think feel a great sense of pride around that and don't feel um like they're really able to contribute in all the ways that they've been able to in the past so it's become a very male-oriented um conversation whereas in the 70s women actually quite a quite a few women worked in the mines so even including some of my great aunts and how was the 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 risk factor uh, in terms of exposure over a period of time or risk factor in terms of, you know, accidents and safety, et cetera? Was that just sort of factored in into, you know, it's a it's an aspect uh, of the undertaking? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there might be even some, you know, 
psychological studies around the idea of doing labor that comes with risk. It actually carries this sense of um, uh, sort of like the military in mm-hmm. some ways. It, mm-hmm. it's, it carries this um, ability that you have one another's back, you look out for one another and you're risking there's this risk element that I think attracts a lot of people. It's a romanticized thing that often re- leads to very detrimental income or non-income outcomes. Um, but yeah, certainly, I mean, my great, my grandpa had black lung, all the men elders in my family, they, they, for the most part, I think if I remember correctly, received some type of black lung compensation, which is very minimal and sad and small given how much time, um, of their lives and their environment they risk to get in there but um and then there's the environmental aspect of things where it's like your own you know the the family land where everybody's grown up on and it's it's not some like beautiful landscape or anything it's a holler where we've lived for you know seven generations but my cousins all still live there but the well was sank you know the well that people used to uh, farm with, used to drink, used to bathe with, was sunk when the mine came through. And lo and behold, the people that sunk it were the very people that lived on it because they had to they had to work in the mines in order yeah. to continue to live there and sunk their will. So it was a it's always been this um, sort of tension between survival and um, and like wanting to stay close to home and. Um, you know, this pain and this pride. That's what the film is really trying to explore is to not say condemn the past wholly or um, glorify it, but to actually just show why it's been so difficult to move past Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were growing up uh, among your, your friends, when, when you were growing up, um, when you spoke of your ambitions for your life, what was the uh, sort of the common thread, if there was one, in terms of who wanted to get out, who wanted to stay, who 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 was really locked into uh, that loyalty to vocation and location? Yeah, I think I think kids here aren't really any different than kids elsewhere until they're sort of their options become limited, and I think that options limiting thing starts probably in like i'd say high school um and so when i was really young i feel like all the kids i was surrounded by had crazy dreams just like mine (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and um you know even my brother who ended up working in the mines wanted to do so many other things right and he still does he's not you know he does things beyond mining um but i think some type of reality check comes in for most when they realize i can't stay in logan county west virginia where you know, like I mentioned, family's been on the same land for seven generations. That matters to me. I want to raise my family here where their ancestors are. The, those things still hold value um, in some way. And I know in our like modern day of America, we've sort of moved on from those sort of older ideas of living in community and family in that way. But they still do hold value here in Appalachia. And I think at, at some point there becomes this crossroads where you have about three different groups of people you have young people that leave and never return and maybe even kind of resent the place for Mm -hmm. limiting them um you have people that leave and return and those that's me um so we're called boomerangs so we we kind (laughs) of always come and go we're inside and outside we we know what we value but it can't always the place can't always provide everything we want and then you have people that stay and never leave and that's a majority of people in my family 
so I was, I was, I'm definitely the black sheep um, in my family in terms of, I remember when I studied abroad in Denmark when I was an undergrad, um, there was just some very funny comments about was Denmark a city in Germany and, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, which is fine. Um, but I, I really, uh, you know, the people that I'm from are very rooted here and they've been in Appalachia as far back as I can count in the 1700s before West Virginia was a state and into Southwestern Virginia. So um, I don't poo poo their idea of home either. And they're, they're respectful of mine too, but sure. yeah, I, I think that, I think the rubber meets the road when you are in high school and you're making the decisions of what's next. Um, and some, I mean, a lot of people don't know, but you know, you can graduate from high school with some training. You have to do some underground, get some hour training before you can go underground, but you can start making $75,000 a year immediately out of high school. If you can get a job in the mines, there's yeah. few and far between, but that's a, that's a crazy level of income for a high school degree. Yeah, um, like, so yeah. So you, you mentioned, you, you know, you and some of your friends having these crazy dreams and you went and followed yours. What was happening within your home dynamic that actually gave you that confidence that those dreams were more than just dreams? They were legitimate uh, ambitions. And what kind of permission did you have to give yourself to be able to have those ambitions? Mm hmm. It's a good question. Um I mean, my parents are both, I, I give my mom a lot of credit because my dad worked all the time. Um, and I think in many ways, he his working hard was very influential on my brother and I. We, we both work too much. But I, I feel like my mom is, she is the dreamer in the family. And, you know, I, I remember when we got nominated for an Oscar for heroin and I brought her out to LA with me and she went to the Oscar. She was just like, I just never, as like a girl who grew up on a farm with nothing, I just never would imagine like my daughter would be in this scenario. Like just, she just was so emotional at the leap of faith that I had. And I don't know. I mean, she's been a constant encouragement in everything I've done. Um, just small things like when your kids show an interest in writing like I did or, or drawing or telling stories, like just providing the notebooks and the color pencils and the things and the time and space to just let me dream. And I think that, you know, now that I have a kid, I think I see those things as maybe more influential than I really realized in the beginning because my interests weren't ignored or just seen as childlike fantasy, but were mm -hmm. seen as something that, you know, um, meant something, mm -hmm. um, and that could add up to something. So I, I think a lot of credit has to be given to my mom mm -hmm. for, um, you know, and she's someone who went to high school and worked in a pawn shop and jewelry store. Like she's, she's not someone that's had a career necessarily at all. And so she wanted her kids, I think, to have something she didn't. Mm -hmm. And, and you're also, you were also surrounded by, uh, people, uh, particularly men, who evidence of their labor was was visible probably on a daily basis, right? Yeah. Which is different than the so-called white collar uh, professions, right? Does it does that form any type of a hurdle in the sense that you know how do I make it clear that this is actually real work too? That, yeah, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. Yeah. When they come in like filthy, dirty and their clothes are so gross, you have to like spray them off. You the can't water even get ink on your hands you would... these days yeah. being a writer, right? <laughs> yeah. Like they have to completely strip down their clothes in the garage before they're allowed to come in the house. So that, that dirty. Um, I do remember there was a great moment with my cousin who's a little younger than me and he's a minor. Um, and I was making a f- music video for John Prine, the last music video before he passed away, actually. And mm-hmm. uh, I cast a bunch of people in my family to be in it. And my grandpa, who's in King Cole, was one of them. And so I had all these little cousins running around and it was it was chaos and um, long shoot days. We shot it over the course of maybe four days through a really quick shoot. Was that my Summer's cousin- End? Yeah, this is yeah. a video for Summer's End. But my cousin, Zach, was like, he came up to me at the end. He was like, you work hard. He was like, this is, this is a lot. Like, this is more than I realized. This isn't just fun, is it? Like, you're problem solving. You're, he was like, this is hard work. And I and I felt so seen because I felt <laughs> kind of silly. You know, you feel silly as sort of the non-laborer in your family going to get your MFA. And you're like, oh, what am I doing? Like, you feel insecure about um, calling yourself an artist and all these things when when there's this like attachment to labor and then he recognized that this also was difficult in its own way um and challenging in its own way and so i think incorporating my family into my work has actually made us a lot closer um and they appreciate a good story i mean appalachians you know not to like paint with a broad paintbrush but like we're a region that really values stories and storytelling and i learned that 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 I don't think I would be the storyteller I was today and be interested in the nuance and complexity and irony and humor and darkness and yeah. ghost stories and everything if I wouldn't have grown up here. So these people taught me how to tell stories. And so they like a good story. And so it, it's something that they appreciate once they see, especially once they see how the pudding is made. And they're like, oh, this is difficult, actually. That's actual work. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned um, uh, spending time in Denmark, and then you also mentioned uh, the MFA program at Emerson, which is in Boston. I'm curious as to, uh, let's just talk about the Boston area for a minute. What did, when going to Boston, what was the alignment between any preconceived notion that you had arrived at by way of media exposure or pop culture uh, and how did that influence or bump up against the reality of your experience, say, in the Boston area? Yeah, I feel like Boston's full of stereotypes the same way Appalachia is, right? You Absolutely. have these like caricatures that have this accent and that act a certain way. And I remember being very aware of that because I love the act, like the, 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 typical Boston accent that you hear like among police officers and that little Irish bars. Like I just, I loved it. And I would feel a little guilty loving it because I was like, am I loving the stereotypes of this place the way I resent people for loving the stereotypes of my place. But I think what it taught me was that it's like people are people everywhere, right? Like there's this like, there's this sort of like uh, facade we put up that is true culturally and and honestly stereotypes they they are useful shorthand right they're people yeah. are we're complex people we're all so different that like stereotypes play this role that helps us to sort of limit one another so we can like process and move on they're not helpful in uh, complicated stories but they're very helpful in processing and so i you think know, the, st- the stereotype can sort of it, it can be a bridge or it can be a wall so yeah. it, you know it could it's a bridge to 
uh, the possibility of a deeper understanding beyond yeah. the accent, beyond sort of the the regional rituals. Or it can be uh, a very easy way for someone to say, well, see, they all talk like that and that sounds dumb. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They must be uneducated or they must be right. violent or they must be uh, racist or whatever it might be. Yeah. It's when we start applying the broad labels to the um, characteristics of the stereotype that it becomes problematic. But I do remember in Boston just be I actually I actually really love that there was still these subcultures within Boston um, that existed that felt kind of like mountain clans. <laughs> it didn't sure. feel all that different. Yeah. Um, and that also included like Puerto Rican immigrants. You know, I lived in Roslindale, which is at the end of the orange line. Um, and my neighborhood was like all new Bostonians, right? It wasn't this like sort of stereotypical I white Irish group you always hear about. It was like Puerto Ricans, Dominicans. So that was really fun to see community, small community in a big city. And I feel like Boston gave me a good taste of that. Yeah, I think a lot of times people, uh, they, they tend to view their the culture that they come from, the region that they come from, almost in the same way that you, you know, you view family in the sense that, you know, I can talk trash about my family all day. I can tell you all the weirdness. I can tell you all the confounding things. But as soon as you start talking trash about my family, I'm getting my hackles up. Oh, and totally. In your experience of being outside of West Virginia, outside of coal, coal country, um, when did you start to become aware that 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 there were more misconceptions than accurate conceptions about the people uh, that you cared about and loved and were still so uh, involved with? Yeah, it actually didn't take me leaving to find out because I've had a thorn in my side about this since I was pretty young, because the difference is, you know, I grew up in I was born in 87. So I grew up in the 90s when, you know, there were plenty of representation on TV and radio of my region that was mostly made by outsiders. Um, and you know, I was exposed pretty early on to even things like thinking this is a later film. It came later in my life, but like the wild, wonderful whites of West Virginia, like documentaries like that, that were really trying to um, exploit in some way this idea of Appalachia. So I knew I didn't have to leave to know mm -hmm. um, that what my reality was and um, the people around me and the people I went to school with wasn't being represented in mainstream culture. Um, I could see the mainstream culture and I could see the disconnect, but I definitely think like it becomes more evident when you're, um, you know, when I went to college, I, I used to have a very thick accent. I have some, I'm, I'm sure like there's words that I still say funny or whatever. I don't know, but there was a very conscious effort for me to undo my accent because I was wanted to be, in broadcasting and mm, you would okay. never be taken seriously. Right. Um, and so that was an undoing. I did at 18 and had my, my uh, roommates from Baltimore at WVU sort of teach me, reteach me how to speak. And I have all these weird ways of saying things now because of that. So I knew it early on that I was going to be up against perceptions of where I was from and who I was. And I think that I've grown to just accept that it doesn't really matter at this stage like but when you're 18 it does matter what people think of you and um how 
you may be limited um, by what how you say something and mm-hmm. someone might underestimate you just by knowing where you grew up. Um, and so I felt that very deeply. And I think I wanted to shake my Appalachian-ness pretty heavily in the beginning um, when I went to college. And it wasn't that I was, a, it wasn't that I, f- it was sort of a feeling of shame um, because of seeing so, so many depictions that I just didn't want to be associated with. Mm-hmm. But it was also um, something that as I got older, I realized it's, it's less about the shame and more about what makes a place unique and what did it give you? And not everything it gave me, I've kept with me um, and that's okay. What what did you participate in? What were you exposed to that kind of moved you from the ambition uh, to be a broadcast journalist? If I'm assuming that that's that's the direction you at least thought you might be moving into to uh, a documentary filmmaker. Well, I, I actually I was working at the radio, the college radio, and ah, great people station. Actually, great people station. would actually make fun of me for my accent. Uh, this is at West Virginia University. People would make fun of me, and so oh, I okay. I legitimately changed my major to writing, and was like, I'll never speak again publicly. Oh, no. That's yeah, what college radio is all about. You're supposed to I, have it that was in West Virginia. I was like, <laughs> come on. Um, so that's when I really recruited my Baltimore roommates to help me. But I changed my major to writing. I always loved writing. I mean, my mom's kept all my notebooks. I have the craziest stories. So the, you know, I think if I wouldn't have been a documentary filmmaker, I would have been a spy or something. Like, I mostly just like to like Sometimes <laughs> listen they're one to the other same. people. Exactly. Um, so changed my major, studied writing and photography, but I graduated during the recession, the 2008, 2009 recession. So I, you know, the dream of working as a writer in a newsroom was, it was not happening. Newsrooms were laying off people and there was a thing called multimedia journalism Mm -hmm. back in those days. And so I learned, yeah, I learned the skills of multimedia journalism and taught myself how to make video content and i actually interned at the washington post in their documentary video department which is a pretty it was ahead of its time it was before it was i think maybe the new york times had a documentary unit at that time it was just the washington post and new york times that and so that really exposed me to longer form documentary and then um i decided i needed to go get my mfa and learn more about this thing called documentary but it was really it was really um kind of in the same way you know, the recession forced me to figure out what skills I had, what val- what my values were, what I really wanted to hold on to. I didn't really care so much about the medium, but I could see that I could at least make a living doing this in the same way that COVID influenced King Cole. Like we had been filming for a year. And then when we couldn't film anymore, the film just changed so drastically. It became this personal thing, right? And so I, I do sort of see these moments in life if you if you respond to them, if you actually like take them in and process what they mean for your work or, and your trajectory, they can have a really big influence on you. So I would say that um, documentary filmmaking, not even on my radar as a kid, like mm-hmm. <laughs> not mm-hmm. at all. National Geographic writing and photography, absolutely on my radar. You know, being a host of a TV show like Oprah, absolutely on my radar, but I just had no clue someone could be a documentary filmmaker and like do what I've been doing for the past 10 years. 
when when you were uh, developing as a documentary filmmaker, uh, either as a student or you know as a as a beginning filmmaker, when did it start to occur to you? And and I, I want to say that you know your work is not exclusively focusing on the region you grew up in, but there are several of your of your films. You mentioned Heroin, but there was also Recovery Boys, and the inter, the interactive series that uh, mm-hmm. that you won a Peabody for. I believe that's uh, the Hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, when did that feel like those stories were calling to you? I think during my MFA program, when I was, you know, in Boston, I was like, I don't feel like these stories here, I'm going to be able to tell well right now. Like I need to, I'm learning so many skills. Let's do stories that where I have built in trust, where I have built in knowledge. So that's also not a gap I'm trying to fill. Like I was trying to fill Mm -hmm. so many gaps of understanding storytelling and the documentary medium and all that. That was like, where can I go? What can I do? What can I say? What can I document that I'm not having to relearn everything, whether it's culturally and technically. So I think during my MFA was when I started to turn back and feel, you know, uh, that I had potentially left a place that, was full of um, something to learn from that otherwise, you know, four years earlier, I was just excited to leave. And at that time, did you feel or did did you look to as maybe touchstones uh, any other uh, artists or filmmakers or musicians, writers that you felt were getting at an aspect of the stories that that evolved from where you came from way more accurately and way more subtly and maybe uh, dared to take on complexity in a way that the mass market wasn't yeah i mean there's a there's so many influences good and bad i think that sometimes we underestimate um the bad influences. I think they're actually sometimes like the bad mentors, the bad examples are more influential than the good ones in some ways, because they tell us what we don't want to do. And sometimes I found that's more helpful is if I'm starting a new project, I don't always know where it's going to go or what it's going to end up with, but I can tell you what it's not going to be. And so I've, I've, when I look back, I think about some of the most influential things were really bad representations of place and people and really harmful ways of looking at the place I was from that made me want to see something else, but it didn't make me want to just do some glossy positive portrait, right? Like, I think that that's the, the natural inclination for us is to see something that rubs us the wrong way and want to completely erase that version of it and tell a diff like a, a glossy version of it i wasn't interested in that i just wanted some form of truth something that um hold the tension between these both sides and certainly films like harlan county usa mm-hmm. which i didn't see until much later until probably in grad school um but even films like you know there's the pbs film the dancing outlaw that i remember seeing in elementary school which is about jessica white and, you know, it starts, I think the opening shot is like a beer can being thrown at the Boone County, West Virginia um, sign. And it's just like all these, and like, there's so much references to domestic violence. Like, it's just, a, it's a chaotic, crazy film. But I think about that film a lot because it's not all bad and it's not all good. And it certainly is kind of embarrassing at moments, but it taught me a lot. Um, and it's because of its poor example in some ways. <laughs> But, you know, my professors at Emerson, I think, are responsible for exposing me to just 
I just had no film background. Mm -hmm. You know, I was coming Mm -hmm. from journalism. And so they were just like incredibly, they were just always like passed over their desk. Like, here's a DVD, here's a book, here's this. And (laughs) they could tell that I needed that I needed help. Like I needed to find those things. And then I think later in life, once that's sort of taught to you, that research side is taught to you. Now my references are insanely wide and not just regional. And, you know, I made a a list of the 50 plus films I watched while making King Cole. And some of them are like, (laughs) some of them are fairy tales and some of them are documentaries and some of them. So I've really expanded the vocabulary um but i think it's those early mentors that guide you and like groups like apple shop which you know started in eastern kentucky in the 70s documenting the coal fields i wasn't even aware of apple shop growing up until i came to emerson and john Vito told me about them and i was like i don't know who apple shop is and they were like right in my backyard so it's a slow process and i teach now at the university of tennessee and so i'm always like always trying if if a student mentions some mentions something and i'm like okay what's a good book what's a good film and i'm always like trying to slide across my desk these things um because it's hard to know i always said like when you don't grow up in a super you know i went to public schools that were underfunded and not the most uh well resourced and like nobody was holding my hand through any of this i just was kind of feeling my way around blindly and uh you don't know like People would ask me, like, what do you want to do? What stories do you want to tell? Blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I don't even, I've never seen the menu. Like, can I, like, have the option? I don't know what the options are when you don't know what's in front of you. And you have. It is a little bizarre how early in life we start asking kids that question, too. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) It's really odd. Really weird. So, anyway, I, uh, lots of mentors along the way, I would say. Was it was it during your MFA program or once you were out and actually making uh, uh, making documentaries that you began to appreciate and maybe experiment with just the elasticity of the form? Like a documentary can be so many different things. Yeah, Um, I think. I was pretty rigid on what my definition of a documentary was until King Cole. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I certainly was playing with things. I think I was, but not to the extent that I was, that I played with King Cole. Um, I kind of just felt like I really needed to, um, I was always, always trying to sort of shake this journalism side because journalism felt like I had to keep too much distance between me and the people I was documenting. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to share a meal with them. If I've found something, you know, somewhere that reminded me of them, I wanted to be able to gift it to them. I wanted to be able to call them on their birthday. And I, I wanted relationships with people. And I kind of felt that the journalism side was telling me that those things were conflicts of interest and those things you had to be careful about your relationships. And and to me, that was everything. Relationships were everything. If I didn't have a connection with this person and they weren't thinking of me to as someone to call on in their life when something's happening to document, then what was I doing? Um, and so I feel like I spent the first five years of my career just sort of bridging that gap between honest, truthful, journalistic stories that are very important, but also the art and craft of documentary. Like, how Mm -hmm. do you document something that's happening in real time that feels cinematic, that has a presence and a tone and a style to it? And that was really what I aimed to do with this verite documentaries that I was making. 
And then with King Cole, this whole other layer came in, whereas like the observation of life itself wasn't enough. Um, it was actually a story of an undercurrent, something lesser seen and more felt. And then that required me to honestly like break open all the ways I had thought about making documentaries and think, watch and uh, sort of learn more about the personal form, the essay form, um, hybrid forms, choreography, all these things that I just was like, how do we express an internal truth? I've never had to do that. You know, I'm really good at sticking around for 80 days, <laughs> watching someone's life unfold and right. getting a shot that's like technically nice. It sounds good. It fits in the scene. I know how to cover a scene. I know how to edit that scene. I, know how to, I knew how to I technically had mastered what I felt like I had wanted to do. And then King Cole came along and was like, okay, now you've got to figure out how to tell a story in a way that you can't actually observe it, right? It doesn't make sense. It's not a story of facts and figures. It's a story of the soul, of the psyche. Yeah. And so... Of a people, just, of a place, of an individual. Yeah. yeah. So it just required me to relearn and rethink. And it was it was very, um, very collaborative. You know, the team, it's, it's the most collaborative film I've done. So many of my other films, it's just me with the camera. But this film, you know, I had so many incredible collaborators that pushed me and help me write and help me edit. And um, so it's just been really eye-opening. I'm not mm -hmm. sure I can go back to the, you know, the way my husband and I typically make films is just us two in the field. We, we were, were so enriched by the feedback of others and this process that it's kind of hard to imagine going back. And, and you entered this project with the, um, uh, a, a track record, so to speak, and 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 a quite uh, a quite um, laudable one in the sense that you've got an Academy Award nomination, you have an Emmy Award, you have a Peabody Award. Does that feel freeing, or did that feel like an encumbrance? Um, it's freeing if you aren't worried about everybody expecting you to do the same thing you've always been doing, which okay. is what the industry wants you to do. Once you get good at something. You know, my agent or anyone would be like, okay, you did that well. Let's do that again with this topic, right? Like, that's the way you sustain yourself. And um, I, you know, had a lot of people along the way of making King Cole that you could tell were just like, what is she doing? <laughs> like, this is like, what is the, what is this going to add up to? Um, you know, my producer, Shane Boris, I give him probably the most credit of, um, giving me the confidence to make this film because he is one of the people that he's a producer that he's worked on a lot of creative films. And he said, he's seen it a thousand times that directors get pigeonholed into a certain type of filmmaking or a certain topic or a certain thing. And they're just asked to rinse and repeat. And he's a producer that comes in and helps you think about new ways of telling stories and all these things and challenging yourself. So I think for me, I felt really freed by the fact that we had already had this level of success that I didn't expect so young. I didn't expect to, you know, have the awards that you've mentioned at my age. And I just was kind of like, okay, like I can do this. I can, I can figure out what this is, what this looks like. And because it felt like I had to, I mean, it felt like a personal enough story that wasn't going to come around again in my life. Felt like it was the right time to tell it. Um, and I had the right team around me to help me do so. So, yeah, I think the awards are when people are like, oh, like awards don't mean anything. It's blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, awards allow you to make the work, the next yeah. work, right? Yeah. Like awards are 
permission for you to take risk. Awards are permission for you to keep doing the thing that you're doing. And so that's how I've always looked at them. And they've been that. So we have arrived at our discussion of King Cole. We took the long way around, but I but I thought that would be helpful for for our listeners and also just to get a sense of, you know, your own perception of that of of that evolution. So King Cole, but for a graspable film, it can be difficult to describe. So I, I, I want to talk about that for just a bit. You're on the website for your film. It's described accurately as a lyrical tapestry of of a place and people king cole meditates on the complex history and future of the coal industry the communities it has shaped and the myths it has created so i don't know when that was written and how that feels <laughs> to you hearing that right but your film premiered back in january of 23 at sundance and and you were sharing with me earlier that it's had a a, a theatrical run which which continues so i imagine you've done dozens and dozens and dozens of these types of interviews and I'm curious as to how the definition of what this film is about has changed for you and how feedback from audiences has uh, inspired you, perhaps, to think differently about what it's about. Yeah. Gosh, I don't even know if I could put words to that because it's still happening. People, mm. When people react to me about the film, I'm just so amazed at people's... You know, I actually think we wrote that thing you read after Sundance or after a couple of festivals and seeing how programmers were talking about it and seeing the ones that would get it right was so exciting. I was like, right, that is what we did, right? That is what we were trying to do. Because, you know, I, I think filmmakers are forced to pretend that we know exactly what we're doing. We have to write these grants that give you great links of detail about the film we're making. And when we're in the midst of it, we don't know what the ending is. Like, we're forced in all these ways to tell you about something that is so ambiguous. Nonfiction is ambiguous, right? And so I think the the feedback has been that this isn't just about this place. And, and I wanted it to be universal, but it is, you know, I always wanted that sort of like fable, magical realism, documentary parts to blend. Um I've been really excited about how people, and I didn't want to narrate it. That's been one big thing. I, I am the narrator. I had no desire. I wasn't the narrator until the picture lock because I just so badly going back to those early days of hearing my voice, I probably traumatized. Like I just didn't want to do it. And people just saying like, they felt so like it's a film that moved them below the neck or something you know yes. like it's like a, it's a film that you know in its way is is guiding but is not uh heavy-handed and i think those types of the things that are that stick with me those stick with me the most is that reactions where people have told me it's so interesting to see a film that could be seen as an environmental film or could be seen as a number of different genres but it doesn't actually give you false solutions it gives you space for contemplation and i was like these are just those are the things that people say that I'm like, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I'm still, I'm still hearing how people describe it. And it still impacts like the layers of what we did, which is really wonderful. And it's, you know, someone asked me the other day, they're like, this is like, you don't get everything on the first watch. You've got to watch this film a couple of times. Are you okay with that? And I was like, I don't care. That's great. Like that, that sounds wonderful that some, that I made something that, um, you know, 
you might want to watch more than once. That's that's a joy that, that someone would get through your whole film <laughs> and then might Absol- want to watch absolutely. it again. <laughs> well, I've now watched it twice. And it, it's funny, I've always had the mindset, you know, um, uh, yeah, movies that I love, I've seen probably up, uh, some some dozens of times, right? Uh, books that I love, I've read multiple times and so forth. And I understand there's a time commitment that isn't involved in other things. But I often say to people, it's like, do you ever hear a song that just like rocks your world and then say to yourself, that's fantastic. I'm never going to listen to it again. Like, that's the way no. I feel about engagement with any piece of art that sort of moves you. And, and one of the beautiful things about King Cole is that, and like I said, I've watched it twice now, I, I am confident that on additional viewings, it will reveal new things, uh, you, know, you know, to me, as I imagine it, re- it reveals to you. But one of the things that I found so pleasurable at the outset was almost from the get-go, any preconceived idea of what that film was going to be about was undermined almost immediately which to to me is like oh okay this is this is great this is going to take me someplace i didn't think because you know you were you were talking about ambiguity but to make a documentary called king cole there are lots of documentaries out there that reveal one or another aspect of what's happening in the coal industry or you could have made a documentary about massy energy and you could have made a documentary about coal mining disasters and so forth the other thing that i think is so wonderful about this film is that even if it wasn't about coal it still works because it's such a meditation on place it's such a meditation on what do we owe the place? What does the place owe us? And so let's talk about what King Cole is. I'm not talking about the movie, but the entity within the mm-hmm. film. What and who King Cole is. What did you think it was going into the film? And what have you heard from people who have seen the film who come away and saying, oh, interesting, because I think King Cole is xyz yeah i think your typical gut reaction to king cole is to think of like don blankenship like the guy who ran massey energy um or our current governor of the state of west virginia jim justice who's a coal billionaire um to think of it as a modern day sort of like um billionaire um who's made their money off coal who's been greedy who's been you know reckless in the environment that's been reckless in employment so i think that that's the typical idea of king cole um and then we didn't want to or it's representative of the industry at large or it's representative of um yeah i would think those two things so like an industrialist uh or a or an industry but for me king cole the film and the personified king within the film is more of a sad figure um it's more of a a frail figure it's more of a um a myth mm-hmm. um and it's interested in culture more so than economics or politics because i think that the economics and politics have ultimately influenced the culture um but my mom actually is the one that's responsible for 
we were writing this narration for so long. It was the hardest part of the film. And we could not figure out what King Cole was. We couldn't figure out who he was. Was he alive? Was he dead? Did we want to say at a time during COVID when coal prices were four times higher than they had been in history that King Cole was dead? And, you know, and and my mom described it perfectly one time over coffee. I was like, what is King Cole? Obviously, it's like not real, but like, what is it to you? And she's like, well... I wouldn't say he's alive like he was, but he's not dead either. So he's, I guess he's a ghost. And like that became the line of the film. And once the film became a ghost story about coming to terms and unfinished business and how to wrap that business up and a, and a film about mourning and grieving and what's next, it just freed us from the typical conversations that I think other cold documentaries help or really cover very well, which mm-hmm. we didn't, we didn't want to, we didn't want it. We felt that those things had been treaded on. We knew that most people would come to this film expecting to see a mountain be exploded. <laughs> right. But it's like, yes. you're, you're going to expect that. And so we did want to subvert your expectations and take you into a, a headspace that wasn't so, um, that felt more timeless and wasn't just so contemporary about sort of our divisiveness today. Like, we don't want you to think of King Cole and think of Joe Manchin in this film. <laughs> That's not the point. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I kept feeling that King Cole was was imbued with all of these attributes that are are piled upon sort of um, any object of faith that that, uh, you know, that a people have by ness by necessity have imbued this, um, you know, ambiguous entity with all of this faith to determine their lives, to determine their ambitions to, and if bad things go wrong, well, that's part of the, that that's part of the homage that we pay to King Cole. If good things happen, well, look what King Cole has gifted us with. And there was a, there was a very faith-based aspect running through it with the pluses and the minuses. Yeah, no. Yeah. This, this, um, it's absolutely you're you're yeah there's nothing more to say you've hit it and you've gotten it probably on that second watch it was even clearer in that way but this is a deity of sorts where you can't speak poorly about it um and that you have to turn a blind eye to the things that um are damaging about it because there's this other side that you're serving um and you're serving it for the community and there's this line in the film that's the most important line to me which is that um i say um I don't remember the day I learned I lived under the king. And then I say, um, I remember learning that if I said anything bad about the king, I was betraying my loved ones. And then that's when I learned the tension between loyalty and truth. And that Mm -hmm. became the Mm -hmm. whole film really was me navigating my own tensions between loyalty to this king, which meant so much to my community, my family still does today, even if he's frail um, and the truth of, what has been lost and and given both but um and then you know i learned to be quiet and that was the the ironic line because obviously i'm making a film i didn't learn to be quiet (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely Um, but like i i do think the film naturally you know if you really look to your footage to lead you into figuring out what your film should be. I've had a lot of people say, I've not seen a film like this. Is this a documentary? What is it? You know? And I really like that because it's, I'm not, I'm less concerned about how you characterize it because what became so evident to me is when we 
we're documenting the scenes that, you know, aren't staged that just are scenes that happen. So in the classroom and the, the, the kids touching the coal when the football might or football um, players come out of the locker room, they're touching right. the coal. There's like this yeah. very, like this, um, lucky rabbit's foot feeling about it where it's like very s- steeped in superstition it's like a um, sign of the cross totally right and so you get baptized with the fake coal dust during the 5k race that they're running in that's black corn starch by the way <laughs> so like the the documentary pure documentary observational scenes had this myth and surrealism to them that they that the film was kind of begging to play into those things because otherwise like what are we doing like what is this what is the stuff we're seeing and and it's performative it's not all people's lives it's not like people you know wake up every morning and touch coal every morning and you know do the sign of the cross um but it is a part of community is a part of identity and so um yeah it was it was really looking at that footage and being like this footage is leading us and if we listen to it into ha- telling a different story that hasn't been told yet. So you mentioned a little while ago that y- you had mixed feelings, more more uh, tilting toward negative feelings about your own narration, uh, which is interesting because I think your narration is absolutely beautiful. It's it's spare and and back to that ambiguity. I guess I maybe assumed that you were narrating it, but I didn't know that in my in my first view of the film. I thought maybe that was the voice of one of the girls that that we follow and maybe she's looking back retrospectively and again confounding my expectations. So the you're asking your viewer, trust me, we're going someplace. Just trust me, right? Take your seatbelt off and <laughs> put the windows down. This is going to be a bit of a ride. With the narration, did you uh, at first anticipate having somebody else narrate? Did you not want any narration? Tell me a little bit how that came to be. When I was very early fundraising for the film, I described it as an essay film. So I knew there was yes. going to be a spine of an essay. I think I thought it would be probably more removed and academic you know, I remember watching some films like um, The Hottest August by Brett Story, which is a beautiful film, and thinking that that narration might be a way this one would function, which was, you know, a, an entity outside of the space we're seeing that's telling us these big things. And, you know, I wrote and wrote some of the writing that's in the film. I wrote in 2018, just free writing. And, you know, all my contributing writers, my editor, my producer, Shane Boris, Logan Hill and Heather Hanna, they all looked at what I was writing and helped me pull out themes. And then it was a matter of who, what's the tone? What's the voice? Who is the speaker? And we really didn't have a set character of who we wanted the narrator to be until we filmed the final scene of the film and the final mm-hmm. scene is a it's a stage scene where we hold a memorial a funeral for king cole but everything that happens during that scene was something that happened naturally so the speech that's given wasn't pre-scripted she wrote that speech i'd never met heather before that day she wrote that speech before we walked up the hill to and the film speech the serves as a eulogy exactly she's giving yeah. her eulogy and the 70 people that showed up that day are all giving their eulogies and it was a very emotional scene, um, a very real nonfiction scene that was that was staged in this way. And we were all blown away watching it happen because we I'd never done anything like this. I'd never known that you could get such incredibly authentic scenes and stories by doing this. So you but, did not write that eulogy? No. 
And and were you aware that the that the woman who who presents that eulogy, who recites that eulogy, performs that eulogy, were were you aware of what she was going to say? Not really. I mean, we we invited 70 to 80 people to show up and we Zoomed with them. Uh, some of them we had phone calls with and we could tell we had a program that we handed out to everybody, the people that volunteered to speak. And so we knew she was going to speak about her own father's experience. She's a coal miner's daughter and she was speaking with her brother. Her brother was standing there and he gave a beautiful speech too. That's not in the film, but we didn't know words that she was going to say. And so when we had been writing all this narration and then we're sitting there watching this, this scene unfolding on the top of this hilltop and hearing Heather say this, we're like, Holy cow. Like she's writing the end of the film. This is unbelievable. And so she created in some ways our guide to go back through with a fine tooth comb of all our narration and actually orient it to be a coal miner's daughter story. And so it was her that gave this incredible speech that she wrote 10 minutes before we went up the hill that we didn't know what she was going to say. Um, that then allowed us to go through the script and incorporate some of the things she said, like Cole is intrinsic and I remember and just first person. It was really inspired by that live event yep. that <laughs> in in watching your film much like in reading a book where you know I, I'll, I'll stop and underline lines that just kind of blow me away i kept pausing watching your film and writing down these lines not necessarily because you and i were going to speak just because the the power of them probably married with whatever image i was seeing you know beneath it but in particular her eulogy and and knowing that she also is a coal miner's daughter and she says she references the you know how brilliant blue your daddy's eyes are because you've seen them matted in coal dust and then she goes on to say i learned that you can be proud of your life and want better for them that come after you and coal itself resists both title of villain and savior it is elemental thinking about that it's really about with coal it's got very little to do with, you know, coal is a completely neutral in this entire story. It's all of the power and the import that we as people have placed upon that elemental mineral. Yeah. I mean, those lines, I I just, I almost like cry hearing them again, because I just couldn't believe she was saying, she was saying everything we were feeling for the past three years making this film. And she hadn't seen the film. And, and it was so amazing to me because you make films and you say things, you put things out in the world and you're always worried that you're out of touch. <laughs> you're always worried that you're not representing in a documentary form, that you're not representing something accurately or that what you're saying is, is going to be, you know, falling on deaf ears. People just aren't going to get it. And she's, she's summing up everything, all my feelings and so it felt so much bigger than me. Um, and and this, is she is she a writer? Is she a she's performer? a she's a singer songwriter that okay. lives in Thomas, West Virginia. And she's I mean she's a poet. Yeah, her name's Heather Hannah. And um, like I said, I hadn't met her before that day, and it was like it was almost like a ghost. She came into my life, and I was like, "How have I not known you? Like our state's so small, and we had so many friends in common." Um, but yeah, this like tension that she was able to demonstrate in the eulogy this like reverence but also this respect for something new and different it was the whole message of the film it just blew us away i mean i just really can't 
I think it's probably the most magical experience I've had making a film because I just have never, you do interviews with people and you ask them questions, but you don't like have people carry a casket to the top of the hill and yeah. hope they say something meaningful. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Right. And so there was a very strong risk that this scene, which we were hoping would be the final scene would just be a complete bust um, that people wouldn't say anything that really was heartfelt or like would really even match the tone of the film. And why uh, was it so important to have a metaphorical burying of King Cole? Um, well, there's like a there's a part of me that just with this film kind of wanted to put images on the map about Appalachia. So like I hadn't seen a good Appalachian funeral on film. <laughs> okay. Um, and so there's a there's a part of me that really wanted this film to to be in the sort of canon of films about this region. Show the things I think show community resilience my family's been involved in my papa's a grave digger my mom runs this um comfort committee which um serves food to grieving families so like death and death rituals and these things there's a big part of my life here and mm -hmm. it's not something we avoid talking about and so once i realized that this film wasn't going to be proposing solutions like you know we're not showing you shots of solar panels and windmills at the end of the film to to tell you what's next right. but actually like what's next is just talking about what we're losing and what we're gaining mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. idea that with the end of this story we can start a beginning but we can't start it until we end this one and so i just felt like it was the most respectful way to come to terms with the death of a story the death uh, because it doesn't represent the death of a people or the death of an industry or anything it's it's about the fact that the story is dying and it's no longer serving us yeah you say the king's um, ghost will haunt our dreams unless we say goodbye yeah and that's how that's kind of how i feel i feel like the region's really haunted by this idea that he's going to come back and that this culture's going to persist and it's going to feed us and nourish us and it's just not um and we have to face that fact and so i i like the idea of looking towards the past looking towards like very old traditions that really aren't done anymore like turning the mirrors toward the wall and opening the windows and tolling the bells for every year that um someone has lived looking towards the past to present uh ways to the future and so it was a risky move <laughs> it could have turned out poorly and you know I, I have heard from some people like the film has actually been really well received in west virginia and locally but the funeral is hard for some people i understand why that is um but heather's speech really just brings it home where she's like this incredible yeah what what else can you say it's like not a not a savior or villain like there's just such an, an incredibly humblingness about that speech that de-escalates and softens the edges of our conversation so absolutely and it disarms because yes. if you come to the conversation convinced that cole is a savior or a villain then you've already cut yourself off from any of really you've cut yourself off from what your film is about which was all of that stuff that doesn't exist at the at the polls right right but back to your voice just for one minute when you you make the decision you're going to narrate how did you literally arrive at the tone and the cadence with which you <laughs> deliver the narration because you know for folks who have not seen the film yet um this isn't a top-down voice of god narration this it sounded like 
the type of voice that exists in your head when you wander through your day and just sort of pose a bunch of rhetorical questions to yourself, grounded in a lot of historical fact, but certainly not overwhelmed by it. Well, I will say we showed up to record the voiceover at 9 a.m. And 9 a.m. right now, Elaine, 9 to 11 a.m. right now is a much fast talker. I talk fast. I think fast. I'm moving fast. And the all the lines we recorded were just wrong. I mean, it just sounded like my voice was a typewriter. I was just like, like, right. And we just we just were listening back to it. We're like, this is this isn't working. Like, this is this doesn't sound right. This doesn't feel like the tone of the film. Is it me? Is it my voice? Like, what is it? And honestly, it wasn't until 3 p.m. Elaine rolled around. We took a break and we went and got lunch. And I I felt discouraged, actually. I felt um, I felt more vulnerable. I was like, mm. I don't know if I can pull this off. Um, who am I talking to? I tried to think of it as talking like writing a letter to someone or talking to my own kid or talking to um, someone on the front porch that felt more casual. But basically I, I had to get to the point where I was in less efficiency mode, which I think Mm -hmm. is like this going back to bridging journalism and documentary and art. I think that that's a learned thing um, that you want to be understood. And instead it was about, doing the voiceover that was felt um and it had to be felt by me and so i think i had to wear myself down and so the the entire first five hours of recording we just deleted it and then we redid everything and i also did did your own vocal quality surprise you were were you surprised by your ability to get there yeah i was and i was surprised at how different it sounded and some people hear it and they're they know me and they're like it sounds so much higher than your real voice and i can't tell pitch that way but you know some people think it's the young girl narrating something some you know some assume it's the filmmaker they don't know and i like that i like that there's this ambiguity around it i'm fine with it now (laughs) i had to get fine with it but it was a long process and credits to my producers peggy drexler and peggy peggy said one of the earlier calls she's like it's going to be you and i was like absolutely not i mean i just fought (laughs) and then my other two producers were less obvious about their opinions about it but peggy was like it's going to be you just get over it (laughs) do it (laughs) well it's it's enormously successful and it's just such a um fits so right with with the images with the uh the sort of the cascade of images the whole hybrid of you know image types and tone um it's the it's the through line you know through through the entire film um thank you and you know and and we mentioned that you know the film has been out out in the world for a little while now uh with uh theatrical runs in various places across the country and it's received really fantastic reviews from the new york times the year was only half over and esquire already called it uh one of the best documentaries of the year and we're looking forward to it being available video on demand thank you for the film thank you for speaking with me about it this has been a real pleasure elaine mcmillian sheldon thank you for having me this was great pleasure 